0: I would like to encourage you, if you would like to, I would like to encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4, that is where we're going to be, and there's a Bible app event for this, John 4. We're going to be in this passage for pretty much the duration of our time together, up until uh, we conclude the sermon anyway. And so uh, it would serve you well to be there, keep your Bibles open to that passage. So my wife, Laurel, has a couple nephews, several nephews who have bicycled around the country. One of them bicycled in Europe. He went from uh, England uh, all the way down to, I think it might have been Turkey or someplace like that. Um, Their first one, their first bicycling that they did that was significant was a coast to coast ride. And on that coast to coast ride, uh, they faced many challenges. I mean, first there's the challenge of pedaling a bicycle all day long. I get on my bicycle, I ride around a cul-de-sac in my neighborhood, and I'm done. That's it, right? Hmm. But uh, that would be a challenge for most of it. it wasn't for them. They're, they're in really good shape, so they did really well. Another challenge is finding places to sleep. Did you ever think of that? Uh, you can't just lay down in someone's yard. That's generally found, frowned upon. Picnic table, that might be good if you found one at a park until the park ranger comes through. I'm not speaking from experience or anything, but that might be, right? How about a park bench? Nah, they generally don't like that either. And then there's just the mechanics of the bicycle. Bicycle tires don't last as long as I would expect them to last, and uh, there's that as well. There's keeping warm, there's keeping cool, there's keeping dry, (laughs) there's avoiding sunburn, there's avoiding frostbite, there's avoiding sunstroke. All those things would be big issues, issues that I wouldn't have thought of in advance. The issue that didn't occur to them in advance, at least not to the extent that it turned out to be a problem is water. I guess maybe that little water bottle that clips onto the frame of your bike, that's probably gone by 9 o'clock on a hot day, right? Water. And they said, those lonesome stretches of highway in the Midwest where you go for miles and miles and miles between towns, those were pretty dry places. I remember Andy, uh, one of them, said to me, we happen to be uh, coming out of the Badlands. And it was a hot stretch that we were on. And uh, about supper time, we looked ahead and said, Yeah, the next town is where we're going to stop. They'd mapped this out in advance. It was a town called Scenic South Dakota. And we'll stop at a store there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a picture of Scenic South Dakota. Population 58. It wasn't exactly what they were expecting. And the only store in town had closed at supper time, and they were there at dusk in the summer. And they looked around; they couldn't see anyone in their homes. They couldn't see any water anywhere. And they thought to themselves, "We're going to have to bust the window in this store and go in and get something to drink." And about the time they were thinking that way, one of them noticed a hydrant pump, and they just stuck their heads under there and drank and drank and drank. And he said to me, "Uncle Steve, it's probably the thirstiest I've ever been in my life." Now. I have never had that level of physical thirst because I've never, I've never gone on that kind of a ride. I've been thirsty physically, but I've never had thirst that borders on desperation. But as I have traveled, as I have traveled the landscape of this lifetime, I have experienced a different kind of thirst. A thirst that can't be quenched with water from a hydrant pump. It is a thirst for the presence of God And knowing that I belong to him, and finding my purpose in him, and seeing his love for me, and understanding his outlook toward me and my value before him, that kind of thirst? That's the thirst that defines, it defines the woman at the well. And when I look at her, I really kind of see what I would look like without Jesus, If I didn't know Jesus as my Savior, I might seem like kind of a loner. But really, the problem is, I'm just thirsty. Take a look at chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 4. It says, Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, Bible students note something that you might not automatically see here. She is here not in the cool of the morning when everyone else would come. She is here not in the cool of the evening to get her water. She's here when the hot, mid-eastern, noonday sun is at its apex, it's noon. And she's there to draw water when no one else Would think that was a good thing to be doing. She probably had had her fill of judgmentalism, of ridicule, of shaming, of scorn, of humiliation. And you're going to see why later as the story unfolds. She's there alone, getting water when no one else is around. You might see her as a loner, but really, she's just thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, I might seem like a loner. But honestly, I'm just thirsty. I might appear to you, if I didn't know Jesus, as somebody that maybe you should avoid. I need to avoid that Steve shield. something wrong with him. He's just thirsty. I may seem like someone, though, that you would classify as an outcast or a social pariah. You know, the, 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 the person that... Man, has to sit alone at the lunch table at school in the cafeteria. I may look that way without Jesus, but I'm just thirsty. Let's look at verse 7 again. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritan. See what's going on here. This woman is kind of taken aback for a couple reasons. Number one, her ethnicity. Number two, her gender, a Samaritan woman. And number three, if Jesus really knew her life story, she assumes, you would not want to be talking to me. I would be someone, by all appearances, that you should avoid, Jesus. But really, she's just thirsty. And if you saw me before I knew Jesus, you might think, that's someone I should avoid. But the truth is, I'm just thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, you might look at me and say, he seems a little cynical, but actually I'm just thirsty. You know what cynicism is, right? The cynic has a contemptuous distrust for everyone and everything. And a cynic rejects social convention. They refuse to believe the good and The cynic's line is, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I'll tell you, I personally tend towards cynicism. It's not one of my better qualities. You can't wear it like a badge that you're a cynic. In fact, the Greek philosophers who invented the term chose the word cynic because it means dog-like. And I know a lot of you have dogs. Maybe they're your best friend. But in ancient times, if you called someone a dog, that was not a compliment. Cynics. It's not something I'm proud of. The woman at the well had lots of good reasons to be cynical. And some of that cynicism shows up in her discussion with Jesus. The very next verse, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for the drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, "you, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, and who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Hear what she's saying? Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him, and he'd have given you living water. And she goes, yeah, right. Cynicism. But Jesus doesn't allow her cynicism to faze him. He, he's not put off by it. He just keeps right on going. Look at the very next verse, Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks from the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He doesn't even acknowledge her cynicism. Do you know why? Because he knew. She's just thirsty. She's thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, I would not just tend towards cynicism, I would be full blown cynical. But I'm just thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, I might appear to be a bit of a pragmatist in the sense of somebody that uses people. Pragmatic people can be users of others. They're sometimes tempted to just get what they need from a relationship and then move on. Relationships can be kind of hard for pragmatic people. They're not sure they even need relationships. Sitting down over a cup of coffee seems to be kind of a waste of time unless it's really good coffee. (laughs) You see a little pragmatism in verse 15. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, buddy, you got something that's gonna keep me from having to come here in the heat of the day? You got something for me? Yeah, I'd kind of like that. Give me that, give, give me that stuff. You see people coming to Jesus Sometimes when their life is messed up and they're looking for a fix, I've been there. Chances are you've been there. I need Jesus because my wife's going to leave me. I need Jesus because my kids are on the wrong path. I need Jesus because I may lose my job. And pragmatists can see Christ, as Paris Reedhead says, as a means to an end. And that kind of thinking is kind of what I see in this woman in that verse. Whoa, I don't know what this guy is. I don't know what he's talking about. But if he can save me from walking through the seat, I could use that. I can use him. Jesus isn't bothered by that. He's not put off the slightest about that. He treats her with respect and dignity. He just continues talking to her. Why, why doesn't he take offense to this? Because he knows. She's just thirsty. <laughs> If I didn't know Jesus, I would be all about, what can I get from me? But I'm just thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, my life might seem kind of hopeless, because it's such a train wreck. But I'm just thirsty. Jesus knows this woman, woman's situation, because the scripture has just told us two chapters earlier that he knew the heart of everyone, so he knew her heart. He knew her situation. But he begins to unfold that and he kind of probes into her life in verse 16. It says, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. Now, some people read the words of Jesus in, in the next portion here as, as though Jesus is kind of pouring on the shame. Let me read it like they would understand it. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, ha, you are right to say you've had no husband. The fact is... You've had one, two, three, four, five husbands, buddy. Count them. And the man you have right now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Hmm. Does that sound like Jesus? Listen to what Alistair Begg says about this, how he views it. He, he suggests that what Jesus is doing when he says, go call your husband, is he's opening this conversation about her relationships in her life because her relationship is so riddled with mistake. Her life is so riddled with relational mistakes that it seems kind of hopeless. And so Jesus is going to kind of probe at that. He's going to kind of poke at that infection to to bring it to light after she says she has no husband. And Jesus actually steps in and says the words that might be just a little too difficult. For her to admit. You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Can you hear Alistair Beg with his Scottish accent saying, Jesus completes the story? <laughs> Jesus completes the story for her, saving her from having to articulate the sorry, sorted, messed up past. Why? Why? Because he is so kind. He is so nice. He is gentle. He is lowly in heart. And he knows she is thirsty. She is thirsty. Most readers conclude that she's bringing up the issue of worship in the very next verse, verse 19, because she wants to change the subject. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see your prophet. (laughs) Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Is she changing the subject? What if she's not? What if it's a real question? What if she's trying to get her life in order? This life that is riddled with mistake. What if her life seems hopeless to her, and she knows he's a prophet, and maybe he can tell her, Where to go to get things straightened out with God? Maybe she's thirsty. How about that? Yeah. If I didn't know Jesus, my life might look riddled with tragic mistakes. But I'm just thirsty. If I didn't know Jesus, I might appear to be completely clueless. But frankly, I'm just thirsty. When he answers her question about worship... I love this. Jesus uses the same respectful title that he, uses, that he uses for his mother when he turns water into wine. He uses that for his mother when he commits her care to John. He uses that same language with this woman at the well. It's verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus says, You Samaritans worship what you don't know. You're basically, you look clueless but he knows she's thirsty. And if I didn't have Jesus, I would look so clueless. Chances are I'd just be thirsty. If I didn't have Jesus, I might appear to be insignificant. But really, I'd just be thirsty. Think about who Jesus just talked to in a previous chapter. Was it Nehemiah or Nebuchadnezzar or was it Nicodemus? It was Nicodemus. If you were here last Sunday, you know why that's funny, right? Nicodemus is a respectable man, and he's a respected man. He's a religious leader. He's a man of power. He's a man of prestige. He is a man of wealth. He is a man of the ruling council of all the Jews. But it's not Nicodemus to whom Jesus discloses his identity. Jesus discloses his identity to this foreign woman, perhaps before anyone else. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah. And make no mistake about it. She understood this Messiah could bring salvation. I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. As far as we know, he had never disclosed that information to anyone else. It's a really big secret. And he shares it with someone who is seen as belonging to an insignificant ethnicity, and second class gender in that society, and a shameful lifestyle. And that's why the disciples don't see her as being important at all. I mean, look at verse twenty seven, the very next verse says, Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asks, What do you want? What are you doing? They're not interested in her. They're interested in lunch. Skip down to verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, because I'm going to brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Don't you have a saying? Four months? It's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Then a saying, one sows, another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you had not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Lunch might seem more important than this woman, but Jesus says she's thirsty. And by the way, her thirst, that is why, I, why I'm here. It's because of her thirst. If I didn't have Jesus, I might appear to be insignificant, but really, I'm really just thirsty. It may appear, if I didn't have Jesus, that I have no value at all, but I'm thirsty. And that thirst is evidently contagious. You might say, this woman actually becomes the first missionary. We often say the Apostle Paul, the first missionary. But look at verse 28. It says, then, leaving her water jar... She left her water jar. She's here to fill it, right? Leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meeting Jesus had quenched her thirst, and she left the well with purpose infused into her very being. Look at verse 39. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man is really. And remember when I said she would have understood Messiah to be Savior? I said that because of this sentence This man is really the Savior of the world. (laughs) If I didn't have Jesus, I'd probably struggle with meaning and purpose and value in my life. But I'm really just thirsty. Now, there are so many lessons you can take from this passage. I mean, I know for sure I could preach a dozen sermons out of these verses that we've just read. But what I want to talk to you about today is probably something that's kind of been on your mind maybe this past week, maybe this past month, maybe for the past few years, maybe all your life. I kind of want to address the question what is wrong with this world? What is the answer to the problem in our society? And if I'm answering the question, what is wrong with this world, my answer is going to be they're really just thirsty. They're thirsty for God. Looking back at this text, Jesus is telling his followers that people are thirsty, he wants them to see the thirst of others. He wants them to open their eyes. I tell you, he says in the last part of verse 30, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. People are thirsty, Jesus is saying. Now listen, I need you to really focus on the next part of this because if you're not paying attention, you might not understand what I say. So if you're kind of like, if you were kind of slumbering, just kind of root around in your chair and get yourself awake again, Okay. <laughs> Because this might be the most important part of the message. The enemy of your soul, the enemy of humankind, would like you to believe that people are not thirsty at all. That's what he would like you to believe. And when you listen to the voices in our broken society, loud voices, you kind of wonder if maybe he's not right. I'm going to take a couple minutes to show you that he is a liar. He is lying. Lying voices say, people are not thirsty. But the truth is, people are thirsty. Recently, The Atlantic published an interesting essay by Jonathan Haidt. Listen to the title of it. Why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. (laughs) Yeah. In it, Haidt noted that people speaking the loudest on social media... Tend to be the extremist. And the numbers are staggering. A, a very high percentage of the opinions expressed are coming from people who are very extreme, in a very slim minority, people who, without social media, we would never hear them because anyone who did hear them would just dismiss them out of hand. But social media has given them a voice. And when they talk together, and when they retweet, and when they share, and when they like, then that minority position gets some steam, and it gets some power. And at some point, people who read the lies begin to think, that must be what everybody does believe. I've heard that so often, and look how many people have liked that. and Look how many people have retweeted that. And these uniquely stupid years come from uniquely stupid viewpoints that are wrongly felt as though they are mainstream thinking. Are you following that? Think about it. Even if you don't have Twitter. I mean, I know there's some of you out there like, that's why I don't have social media. Ah, Good for you. (laughs) Even if you don't have Twitter. Twitter. You've heard it on your favorite news outlet. The announcer says, this headline. And then he says, Twitter reacts. <laughs> like Twitter's an authority on anything. And those who are reacting in Twitter are a very small minority. Most of us on Twitter, we're just sitting there quietly. And we don't agree with what those minorities speak about. Height says, those voices, those opinions Are not represented, representative of the real world by a long shot. Okay, now listen. (laughs) I think this has influenced good people, Christian people, like you and me. I think it has caused people like you and me to believe the lie that our faith is not as relevant as we once thought it was. I think it has caused us to believe the lie that Christian opinions are not wanted. Pastor Tim Keller calls for prayer regarding Twitter response. And when Twitter responds, it says something like this. Pastor Keller should shut up along with all the rest of the Christians. And we hear that and we're like, huh, maybe everyone wants us. Maybe they don't want. Maybe they're not interested. Maybe Jesus isn't as relevant as I once thought he was. Do you see the insidious? I can't say that word. The insidiousness, I did it, of the enemy. And you see how he twists your thinking. I'm convinced this has caused some of us to be reluctant to give away the living water that we have. Some of us maybe hesitate to invite people to worship. After all, this vocal minority has told us that no one wants God anymore. That's not true. People are thirsty. Some of us question the validity of sending people overseas to tell others the story of Jesus. The vocal minority says, that's colonialism. That's not true. People are thirsty. Some of us question having a commitment to our own continued discipleship and tragically to the discipleship of our children because the vocal minority has told us that's not really relevant. That's not true. People are thirsty. Don't believe. Those 10 to 15% of users who are squawking like birds on Twitter. See what I did there? They lie. Believe Jesus who says, I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. People are thirsty. They are. And if you're going to make a difference, then giving living water to the thirsty needs to be your priority. Giving Jesus to the thirsty must be our priority. When I look at Jesus' words to his followers, I I see that this really requires tending to something other than our own agenda. It requires adopting Christ's agenda. Let me be real clear what I'm talking about. You make the application. I'm talking about sacrifice, not just financial. It's easy to write a check. I'm talking about sacrifice, personal sacrifice. I'm talking about time. For your own discipleship. I just don't have time to do that. Make time to do that. And for the discipleship of others. I'm talking about, and this will make me popular, sacrificing fun. What do you mean sacrificing fun, Pastor Steve? You just went from preaching to meddling. Yes, I did. You make the application. Sacrificing fun so that you can serve others for the sake of The kingdom, cooperating with them, helping them grow in a faith as they help you grow in a faith. I'm talking about sacrificing whatever it is that keeps you from getting water as the thirsty and giving water to the thirsty. Hmm. The disciples had their own agenda lunch. (laughs) But Jesus, he can't even think about eating. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Do you want to change this world? Do you want to give your children a better world? Do you want to grow in your faith personally with like-minded people? you want to give water to the thirsty? Then evaluate your own priorities. Adopt Christ's agenda. When I think about making a difference, I know this requires cooperation of a body, of a group. I can't drink living water all by myself. I can't share living water all by myself. I can, but it's just not near as good when it's done in community. And buddy, Jesus believed in community. He believed in believers being together and growing together. He spent three years with the same 12 guys. It requires partnering with other believers. Friday evening, the Kerwinsville High School had their baccalaureate service, and Pastor Dan Osterhout and I spoke to the graduates who were present there. Earlier in the week, I went into Pastor Steve, and he is ever the gentleman, Pastor Steve. Well, Steve's the gentleman, too. I went into Pastor Dan's office. I said, I have some ideas on what we can speak of on Friday, and he said to me, you do it. You just do it. You do it. Go ahead. You do it. You do it. And I said, no, no way. And I almost had to get rough with him. No way. I said, We do this together. Here's why. Look at verse thirty six. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may be glad together. I felt great when I left that baccalaureate service. We had five graduates, they were there, got my picture taken with them. It's just a funny evening that night. And I felt even greater. Because Dan and I did the ministry together. (laughs) Yeah. You want to help solve society's problems. It will require adopting Christ's agenda. It will require engaging in ministry together. Because the kingdom of God isn't about me and my church. The kingdom of God isn't about you and your family. The kingdom of God isn't about us and our friends. The kingdom of God is about working together to give living water to the thirsty as we enjoy it ourselves. So maybe, just maybe, it would be wise on this last Sunday of May to examine your own commitment, so to speak. When I read the news online this week, and you all know what happened this week, that tragedy in that school in Texas, you ever wonder why I don't talk about those things? I can't talk about those things. When I read that headline this week, uh, I walked from my study to where Laura was, and I told her. She replied, what is wrong with people? And without even pausing, I looked at her and said, this world is on fire. It is burning. You know what quenches fire? Water. (laughs) This water just, I'm sorry, this world isn't just thirsty. It's burning up. And you and I have water. Jesus calls calls us to give it. I've never had the thirst level of Laurel's nephews in scenic South Dakota, but I've been thirsty and didn't even know it before. I'm talking about that spiritual thirst. That thirst for God, it's something that's easy to misidentify. And I personally am good at finding substitutes for that. A vacation, that will fill me. A new fishing pole, that will satisfy me. Food, that's what the disciples were talking about. That will satisfy me. You know, there's a joke in the Thursday night group. Pastor Steve eats so much pizza, so much food, that if we ever have unintended guests, you know, someone comes in that didn't say they're coming, if we just ask Pastor Steve to eat half of it, it'll feed three of them. Right? That doesn't satisfy my thirst. Romance. That has not satisfied my thirst. Sorry. Sorry. family. (laughs) I love my family. i die for them. They have not satisfied my thirst. None of that will suffice. Listen to the moment when Jesus pours out the water for the woman at the well. You might not have noticed it. Maybe you did. It's verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And in her mind, she realizes she is standing before the Messiah, her Savior. And in her heart, she begins to hope and believe in him. And in her soul, her thirst is being satisfied. And she leaves her water jug and goes to find other people to share it with them. I want to be the woman at the well. And I want you to be her too. So let's pray that God would make us that person. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray together. Let's pray. God, the world is on fire. And the only thing that will put that out is you. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do things. <laughs> you know, we still have speed limit signs up. What it means, though, is that all the efforts of humankind will fall short. Only you can save. I pray for anyone here who maybe has never really received the living water that you offer Jesus, that they would see their own thirst and that they would say, fill my cup, Lord, that they would lift it up and find forgiveness for their own sin in the sacrifice you made, Jesus. They would turn their hearts over to you, trusting you, and they would follow you and share this living water with others. That is what I pray for all of us, that we would evaluate our own priorities and make the ministry of serving water, living water, a priority in our own life. Because the fields are ripe unto harvest. May we participate as you would have us to in that ministry. In Christ's name, amen.